Well, how long is a year? Everybody knows that a year is exactly 365.242374 days. Roughly 365 and a quarter, which means, of course, every four years, those quarters pile up and we are left with an extra day, which we kind of stick there in the short-changed month of February, and there becomes a February 29 instead of 28. Uh, we call that a, a leap year, yeah. It's a little bit more complicated than that. You would think that that would just happen every four years, but uh, that's not actually the rule. Uh, the rule is that if the years are divisible by four, they are leap years, unless the year is also divisible by 100, in which case it's not a leap year, unless it's also divisible by 400, and then it is a leap year. Everybody tracking? Okay, so that explains why 1900 was not a leap year, because it is divisible by 4 and 100, but not 400. But the year 2000 was a leap year, because it's divisible by 4 and 100 and 400. Don't worry, you're not going to have to worry about that problem for the next 100 years or so. Um, or 200, who knows. Well, when astronomers um, proposed this solution, it was not called a, a leap year yet. Um, in fact, I don't think it should be called a leap year. If you think about it, why is it called a leap year? You're not leaping over a day. In fact, it's something that slows down the year by day. I think it should be called a speed bump year, or like a hurdle year, or a hiccup year, or something like that that shows that there's this extra day in there. But anyway, astronomers knew that this needed to be adopted um, by the largest number of people. So uh, this was in the mid-1500s. They took this problem not to the king, who only ruled one country, but to the pope, who had authority over multiple countries. And so they took this to Pope Gregory. In 1587, Pope Gregory XIII declared that the following year would be the very first solar leap year. Thus, we call it the Gregorian calendar, because it was Gregory XIII who instituted. But this was a problem for one group of people, the Protestants. See, in 1557, the England was being ruled by Protestants, and they didn't like the idea that the Pope had the authority to just add an extra day whenever he wanted, and so they decided to rebel. And so everyone in the world that was, you know, Catholic or new Catholics, uh, they adopted the Gregorian calendar, except for this group of Protestants in Britain. But the problem is that all of the calendars in the rest of the world now recognize February 29th. And so they just decided to ignore it. They just, their calendars ended on February 28th and picked up on March 1st, a day or two later. And they just pretended that February 29th did not exist. And they said that they were leaping over the law for that day. And so that's why it became known as a leap year, because it was a day that you could leap over the law. Now, what does that have to do with the book of Ruth? <laughs> I'm really glad that you asked. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth in the days that the judges ruled Israel, and we will pick it up again in chapter 2, although today we're going to do all of chapter 2 and chapter 3, so buckle up. Uh, we're going to look at six scenes of a romantic drama, and I'm not going to give you all the scenes up front. We're going to let them unfold once, one at a time. And so we'll start with the first scene, and in any... Um, 
kind of soap opera romantic series that you're watching, it always starts off with the episode recap. So that's what we're going to start off with. Previously on Days of Our Lives, in the days the judges ruled Israel, this is what happened. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you, and they answered, Yahweh bless you. Okay, so stop there for now. As we're still recapping, if if you're new to the series, the book of Ruth is a snapshot of normal, godly life in the midst of uh, perilous chaos. This happens in the days that the judges ruled Israel. So the book of Judges, as you're walking through it, chapter by chapter, gets darker and darker, and the people become more and more confused as to what Yahweh expects of them, and they become more disobedient, and it leads to absolute chaos. But not every single Israelite was being unfaithful to God. Not every single Israelite in the whole country had ignored the word of God that had come to them. There were pockets of faithful people that still trusted the, the scriptures that they had and trusted God and tried to obey them to the best of their ability. And so here we have this little snapshot of normality in the tiny town of Bethlehem. And it's kind of like this little um, enclosure that's, that's cut off from the rest of the chaos. And so we're just looking at normal life. There isn't a single miracle that happens in this book. There's no direct revelation from God through an angel or a prophet. This is just normal people going about their normal lives. Now, we saw as well that this one family, um, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, decided to try to escape God's judgment on Israel during the time of the judges. If this happened around the time of Gideon, this would have been the famine that came because of the Midianites stealing all their food every year. And so this was God's judgment on Israel, but they wanted to avoid that judgment, so they kind of like popped out and went to Moab. But were they able to escape sovereignty? No. The doctrine of sovereignty means that God is in control of all things, everywhere, at all times, right down to the most minute details of life. And so Elimelech was part of the judgment. He was meant to die during that time. He couldn't escape it by crossing the border, so he died in Moab. So did his two sons. But by now they were married to two Moabites, which they weren't supposed to do, but it's the days of the judges, right? So now you've got Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, three widows living in Moab, and Naomi finds out that there's bread back in the bread basket in Bethlehem, right? So she wants to go back to Bethlehem, but she doesn't want to show up there with her two foreign daughters because the town there has to look after her. So she tries to convince them to stay. Orpah almost immediately decides, I'm going back to my people and my gods. I'm no longer going to be part of this Jewish-Israelite thing. But Ruth has had a real faithful relationship built with the true God, the living God of Yahweh. So she refuses to go back to her people and her God, and she clings to Naomi, and the two of them show up. And they really don't have a plan. Um, There's no plan here. They're just showing up, casting themselves on the grace of God, which we've learned is always the right move. Whenever you pick, pick sides, you always pick Yahweh. It's like if you're picking a basketball team on the playground and Michael Jordan's there, 
you start with him. Okay, that's how that works. So if you have to pick sides, you pick Yahweh, and that's what Ruth has done. And she has clung to Yahweh, not knowing what the solution is. Naomi actually painted this crazy comedic picture, this parody of the best-case scenario for you, uh, Naomi, uh, Ruth, is if I, in my old age, meet somebody tonight, we get married, we have a baby, we wait until the baby grows up and then he marries you, then you'll have somebody look after you. It's either that or something way less likely, that we find a rich, single Israelite back in Bethlehem who's related to us and actually doesn't mind that you're a foreigner, and he decides to marry you. That's never going to happen. And then the narrator tells us, so it just so happened uh, that when she was going to a field, that she picked the one field that was owned by a rich, single relative of Naomi's named Boaz. And so that's what we've seen up until now in our little romantic drama, the little chick flick of the Old Testament, as it were. And now we move on to our second scene. The second scene is the meet-cute. Every romantic comedy has a meet-cute. This is the scene where boy meets girl. And uh, usually there's something cute going on, and of course the Bible doesn't disappoint. Verse 5. So we're still in chapter 2, verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, the foreman of the, those harvesting, who was in charge of the reapers? Who? Uh, sorry, he said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now stop there for a moment. Remember the gleaning. It's not really a word we use a lot today, but it was a practice established in the book of Leviticus in the book of Deuteronomy, that said that when an Israelite harvested his field, he was, if he dropped any of the sheaves behind, there was like spillage off the cart, he was not to go over the field again and collect those leftovers. He was to leave them for poor people, for widows and for immigrants, sojourners. And they would be able to come and pick up the scraps from all the fields of all the Israelites. And so there was like a built-in welfare system for vulnerable people, but it also required them to work for it. It's not like the check just came in the mail. They had to wake up early and do this. And Ruth had been doing that, and she just picked a random field, and just so happens, lucky for her, it's the one field of the one person that actually will end up wanting to... Oh, I don't want to ruin it. Never mind. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, well, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field um, or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Notice he calls her daughter. He's being very respectful. He's taken on a um, protectiveness about this young lady. She keeps being called young, by the way. He calls her young. Uh, the foreman calls her young. That's important. There, there appears to be a age gap here, a significant age gap. And we looked at that in our first message when we were trying to put the date on when this book happened. You know, the genealogy of Matthew and uh, genealogies in Chronicles and that when you piece them together, you realize that it's very probable that Boaz 
was the son of Rahab, the, the Gentile prostitute that when the nation of Israel came in. So if Rahab was young and married Salmon and had a baby in her old age, and Boaz is very old when he has his first son, then the genealogy works. And so he would have to be quite a lot older than her. So he keeps referring to her as, you know, daughter or young one. Also notice in verse 5 that he asks this interesting question. Whose young woman is this? Not who is she? What's her name? In a sense, I don't really need to know her name right now. All I want to know is, is she single? <laughs> um, whose young woman is this? Like, whose wife is this? Why, why is she here? It shows that he knows his workers, that he can spot one. I guess it would be like us today if we, we drove into church and passed, parked in the, the visitor spot, there was a, uh, a brand new Ferrari or something. Uh, you, would, you wouldn't ask what kind of car is that. You would say, whose car is that? You know, there's, there's something going on here that's unusual that we've, we've all spotted. Well, we've just spotted that there's this young woman. Maybe she looked a little different being a Moabite. And he wants to know, is she a slave of some local person? Is she um, the wife of somebody? Why, why is she here? He's interested. And so um, the answer is, well, she's this Moabite that came with Naomi. That must have been the talk of the town, right? So he must have known about this woman who came with Naomi. Remember that we've also looked at the fact that God provides for us, as he did for his people, through two basic ways. One is through the provision that he makes in his law, and the other one is through provision that he makes through providence. So if sovereignty is the doctrine that God is in control of all things and all details, providence is the way that God is involved in his creation without breaking the laws of nature. That was our little definition. Remember, you've got miracles where God's involved in his creation through the breaking of the laws of nature, walking on water, water into wine, healing people with leprosy. But then you've got the more common way, the way that he's involved in his creation all the time, and that is through ordering events and circumstances and using the decisions, the free will decisions that people make and orchestrating his will to be accomplished using those natural means. And so this is what's happened with Ruth. She is being provided for by these two things. One is the law of Moses, the revealed will of God is specifically, I want you to provide for poor people through this gleaning system. And the people were obeying, and so this blessing is happening. The other way God is providing for Ruth is through providence. The ordering of her random free will decision happens to be the one place and she comes into contact with this person that God is providing for her, not miraculously, but through circumstances. So Ruth chose to trust Yahweh, and Yahweh came through for her. He's being faithful. This is what we learn about God. The kindness of his people... The obedience to his law is providing exactly the way it was designed to. We also see here the very first anti-sexual harassment policy, because in verse 9 he says, have I not charged these young men not to touch you? So there must have been some sort of vulnerability, of course, for a single woman among a bunch of you know, farmhands working and sleeping out in the fields that she might feel like, I'm going to glean and then I'm going to go somewhere else. And he says, no, you can stay here, you'll be safe. It again shows the influence that this man has over his workers. That he, if he says they're not going to touch you, they're not going to touch you. You're safe. I'll make sure of that. And so another lesson we learn about God here is that he doesn't forsake his children. And he's not going to forsake you either. 
Sometimes you look at the news or whatever and you think, what's happening with the economy? What's happening with, you know, don't worry. Whatever happens, God's not going to leave his children. Psalm 37 verse 25 says this. I've been young and now I'm old and yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Psalm 37 verse 25 is a precious promise for us. Psalm 37 verse 25 tells us that here is a man who has lived a long life and there's something he's never seen. One of God's children begging for bread. If you are in a Christian community of people that know the word of God and are obeying the word of God and you are faithfully connected to them, you will be taken care of. Christians don't need to beg. I often think when I have to think through, you know, if you, if you walk, you know, let's say you at the mall or something and somebody's begging for money and you're kind of, how do I know if they're going to use it for drugs? Uh, you know, how much should I give them? Should I give anything at all? Sometimes you have that bit of that conundrum. What I often ask myself is, what if I were in that situation? What if I, had, I was completely destitute, I had no family to look after me, I had no job, I was not able to work, and then it always occurs to me, that will never happen to me. Not because, oh, I'll always be healthy because of my diet. Not because, well, I have a large enough family. Why? Why would that never happen to me? Because I'm part of this church. And if you're part of this church, you would never, ever have to sit at a mall and beg for money, ever. We would take care of you. We would sacrifice if it needed to be sacrificed to look after you. That's how Christians function. That's how God's people have functioned. And that's what we see happening here with Ruth, that even this foreigner, because she has connected herself to God's people and is trusting to God, these people, because they're obeying, she's getting that benefit. Now, of course, if there's a church that's disobedient to the word of God and not looking after their people, that's something God would take care of. But here, these people are doing what they're supposed to. So he provides through his law, he provides through circumstances, he provides through her good work ethic, and he provides through the kindness of his followers. Look at her. She's not entitled at all. Look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and, have, and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So here she's, she's being humble. She's, she's got no expectations. She doesn't feel entitled. She is flabbergasted, really, that this person that she's never met is being this kind to her. And this is what it's like when, when new believers come into the faith and they meet godly older believers who who just are doing what the bible says it's really it's almost shocking how well christians treat each other compared to the way the world does and, and for a new believer coming into a church sometimes they say well what's the catch here people are being so kind people are doing so much for me i mean this is what it was like when you show up at seminary um you know you come from 
South Africa with all the international students, you show up there with nothing, and the church there just looks after you. I mean, they're giving you stuff, and they're helping you with your tuition payments, and they'll, some people get given a car, some people, you know, it's just, and you, you're kind of like, what's, what's the catch here? What do these people get out of it? The answer is nothing. This is just how Christians are. And so this is how you need to be. This is a great example. This is a snapshot of godly normality. This is Christianity 101. We do things for other people so that they're taken care of. And it should be shocking. Now, love is clearly in the air, right? <laughs> love is in the air. God is there. Um, he has a couple of practical principles for single people as well, single folks. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that God has left you with the sole responsibility of finding a spouse all by yourself. God is involved in the selection of your spouse. He's, he's the matchmaker. He's the one that's orchestrating the meet cute. What you can do is cooperate with him. Don't make it harder. Learn his law. Know what his standards are. Know how you should be as a single person. Know what the person that you're looking for, know what they should be like. Proverbs 19, verse 14 says, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from Yahweh. There's something that God needs to be involved in. And that is the picking of your spouse. And so he is involved in circumstances by giving counsel from his word, by your parents. If you're still living at home and you're under their authority, God has given them that authority for a reason and put them in that place. They know more than you. I know, I know it feels hard to believe that your parents know more than you at age 16. But they do. They do. You just have to trust God's word. They have experience, wisdom, and authority and this is the most practical advice I could possibly give anybody who's looking for a spouse. Just as with Ruth, you need to work on being the right kind of person to be married before looking for the right kind of person to marry. So if you are a single person, your highest priority as far as getting married is be the right person. Know your Bible, know God's standards, ask Him for grace, be discipled. Be wise. Read a lot. Learn a lot. Grow a lot. Pray a lot. Serve a lot. And as you become the person God wants you to be, the right kind of person will be attracted to that. Did you notice what Boaz was saying about her? She's like, well, how do you even... How, why are you being so kind? What's going on here? And he says, I know you. By reputation. I know you by reputation. Remember, all of this that you've done, it has been told to me in full. How you, this is verse 11. Um, what you've done for your mother-in-law, how you left your family and lands for the new people. It's been told to me. See, if you are becoming the right person, your reputation speaks louder than words. And then when the other right person comes along and says, you know, I'm, I'm looking to be married, and they go to some wise, godly person, they say, aha, I know just the person for you. By reputation. This is the best way. I know that there's, there's you know, good, better, best ways of meeting people, and there's all sorts of stories, and 
we met at a, you know, whatever, or we did this, or the algorithm put us together, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm a little old-fashioned, but I'm not poo-pooing all of that stuff. I'm just saying, the best way you could ever meet your spouse is if somebody that you know and trust as a spiritual counselor recommends someone else. That's the best way. Like, it's not, a, it's not foolproof, because people can be hypocrites. But when their reputation and the character and there's, there's, there's depth of godliness there and the person that you know and trust says this person will be a good match. That's, that's the best algorithm out there. Take it or leave it. Well, just like Boaz's faith is on his lips from the first time he speaks, he's greeting people in the name of Yahweh, they're greeting him. This is the kind of boss that opens up a meeting in prayer. You know, he's, he's not ashamed to be a follower of Yahweh. In the same way, when, when Ruth speaks, she speaks of Yahweh as well. And so he notices this about her, and they say these things to Verse 12, you know, may Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, this is a very important line. In the romantic genre, there's often in the first few scenes lines that show up later on as being important, and this is one of them. He says to her, you have come to seek refuge under the wings of God. This is an, an image, a common image that would be of a mother hen, you know, calling her little chicks under, the, under her wings for refuge from the rain or from a predator or something like that. There have been cases where they have found mother hens that have been burnt in a fire and under them are these live little chicks that the mom wouldn't even move to save her own life and bore the death of the fire in order to protect her chicks. That's, that's the image that they have here of Yahweh. He's the one whose wings you have come under. But that's an important little uh, post-it note to put on your fridge for a moment. Let's move on to the next scene. We've had the episode recap and the meet cute. Let's go to the first date. The first date is, they didn't have movies in those days. So this is just dinner and a to-go box as well. See, those are biblical, honey. Um, <laughs> verse 14. And they lifted up their voices. Oh, sorry, um, wrong chapter. Verse 14, chapter 2. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food of what she had left over after being satisfied. So what's going on here is there's, there's this, this load of food that she's got. Usually gleaning would bring about about a day's meal. So if you're going to glean for your family, you would glean from early in the morning to late and you would get enough to feed your family for that one day and the next day you'd have to come back and do it again. She has gleaned this, this amount, it's about 26 pounds. This is going to last her a while. Her and Naomi are going to be able to live off this. So Naomi kind of looks at this and says, 
where did you, are you gleaning among the clumsiest workers in all of Israel that they're just dropping all of these leftovers for you? Like, where is this place? What's going on here? But again, what we're learning here is that, that through the kindness of Boaz, through the kindness of God's people, there's this abundant provision. And people, kind people do kind things. And Jesus said that you will get reward for bringing me a cup of cold water. When did we do that, Lord? If you brought a cup of cold water to the least of these in my name, I've, I noticed that. You will get your reward. When did we visit you in prison? When did we clothe you when you were naked? If you're doing this to other people, I will reward you. You're not going to get your reward from them. You're going to get it from me. So kind people do kind things. And so this man's character is on display. So her character has come through her loyalty to her mother-in-law and her sacrificial choice of God's people and her reputation. His character is coming through here as well, that he's generous. He's willing to take a financial knock. I was reading a book recently that was talking about agriculture in Israel during those times. And they said it was very common for a village of about 150 people to have, over the year, a 6,000-calorie deficit. So people were mostly hungry most of the time. And for God to say, I want you, especially this is just after a famine. It was fresh in their minds that everyone lost their stock portfolio and everything was wiped out. And now there's a bit of abundance... Instead of hoarding it for himself, he's saying, let some more drop for the poor people. It shows a lot of his trust in God. Matthew 5.14, Jesus told the church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Your character will shine forth. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When, when we live lives of abundant kindness, even when it results in a financial knock on us personally, that speaks volumes to unbelievers. That is an amazing witness to unbelievers. Lewis Drummond, he's a, um, a biographer of Charles Spurgeon uh, that I enjoy to read. He said, speaking about social ministries and evangelistic ministries, sometimes there's this dichotomy in the church. We don't do social stuff you know, feeding the poor, prison ministries, medical stuff. No, 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 because we're all focused on the gospel. The gospel's most important. This is what he says. He says the New Testament church and the church down through the centuries of its history, in its greatest hours, always combined in a harmonious unity these two merging ministries. For example, John Wesley, a fervent evangelist, started prison reform and credit unions for poor people and a host of other social concerns. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, went to America pr primarily to start an orphanage in, jo in Georgia. And Charles Spurgeon, of course, was known as an evangelizing philanthropist, unquote. So Christians throughout the ages, the church, we've, we've been involved in society for the purpose of the gospel, but not to the detriment of the people. So just remember that sometimes. If you, sometimes you'll get in a conundrum like, um, you know, my unbelieving child wants me to help him move his furniture into his girlfriend's apartment because they're going to live together now, you know, and then, and then the Christians will come tortured with like, do I help? Do I not help? I mean, I want to, I want to help him be a good witness, but at the same time, I don't want to look like I'm endorsing sin, you know, and, and for each person that's, you're going to have to make that decision for yourself depending on the circumstances. But in general, I 
think unbelievers realize that when a Christian is being kind, he's not endorsing what they're doing. Especially you can be clear about that. And you can be kind and be serving and be helping a person so that you build a relationship so that you can give them the gospel. And they know that you're, you're not somebody who's looking down at them, but you're, you're, you're approaching them as a, a person who's concerned for them. So that's the first date. She leaves with her to-go box that's going to f- feed an army. Um, and now we get to the fourth scene, meet the parents. Or in this case, it's the in-laws. You know, the law of the in-law. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, It's a, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Ooh. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now notice, by the way, how consistent her theology is. Who did Naomi give responsibility to for her bitter fate of the death of her husband and her sons? God. She said, God has done this to me. Now, good things are happening. Who is she giving credit to? God. You see, that's how sovereignty works. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May the Lord give, take away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all up to him. So that's what's happening here. Um, and Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. He is a redeemer. Now this is a technical term. We speak of Jesus as our redeemer. We sing songs about that. There's churches called Christ Redeemer, etc. This is where that comes from. There's a, a law in Deuteronomy that, that Naomi is talking about that gets picked up in the New Testament to talk about Jesus. But back in Deuteronomy 25, this is the law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and shall take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. That's Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. That person is known in Hebrew as a goel. Goel is the word we translate as redeemer. It's the word used here. This man um, is, in verse 29, Ruth, Naomi says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our goelim, our redeemers. So she is relating what's happening with Boaz to what's happening in Deuteronomy 25. So it's very helpful to know your Bible, by the way. When you know God's will, you know how to ask for his blessing. This is called the Leverite law from Levir, which is Latin for brother-in-law. So that's why it's called the, the Leverite law or the brother-in-law law. So in our days, meeting the parents is an important part of the relationship. You know, it's one thing when you go out a few times with someone in college, but when you bring him home to meet dad, that's like upping the game, isn't it? Especially if I'm the dad. I will be cleaning my shotgun that day. Um, you know, but the meeting the parents is important. But in those days, meeting the family was even more important, and it was especially important to meet the future brother-in-law. Because <laughs> imagine this. My brother comes home, he brings a girl over, everyone's like, oh, she's so wonderful. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't like her. Well, it doesn't matter if you like her or not. Well, it might. If he dies, I got to marry her. 
So that's the purpose of this family arrangement, this close relative. Now, if you don't have a brother, it goes on to talk about there's, there's whoever's closest. Whoever's the closest male, their responsibility lies with them. And only if they refuse to do it, and we'll, we'll get to that, that was against the law, really, and there was a penalty for that, but then it would go to the next person. So, that's what's going on here. Verse 21. Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. She may, actually makes a mistake here, by the way. He didn't say that. He said, My young women. Stick with the female servants that are around here. In Moabite culture, though, it would not be considered unusual to hang out with the young men. Um, but Naomi actually corrects her, just a little thing. But anyway, so she says here, um, until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And so that's about seven weeks. According to Deuteronomy 26, the, the wheat and barley season was about, the harvest was about seven weeks, about two months or so. And now there's kind of like a dot, dot, dot. There's going to be a commercial break. Um, so let me use this commercial break to explain to you why a leap year is related to Ruth. I said I would, right? Well, when Pope Gregory Thirteenth declared in his Gregorian calendar that there would be this day, the 29th of February, every four years, the Protestants in Britain said that they were going to leap over that law, they were going to ignore that law for the day, and they celebrated that. And what developed was a superstition, as well as a custom, that other laws and customs and traditions could be leapt over that day as well. And so one of those was marriage proposals. It was very customary in those days that if you wanted to see if a young lady was interested in you and if you should propose marriage to her, you would send her your glove. I'm not making this up. I read it in a history book. You would send her your glove that week. And when you went to church, if she was wearing your glove, that was a sign that she was interested and that you could now go and approach her parents and ask for her hand in marriage and she wouldn't say no. Um... I, if she sent the glove back, I guess that's a bad sign, right? Um, it's sort of what people in high school do with a letterman jacket. Is that a thing? You know, the girl, if, if, if she's wearing the letterman jacket, then she likes the guy, and if she spits in it, then I don't know. So that's what's happening here. But on the 29th of February, it became customary for the woman to do the proposing. So she would, in various ways, signal to the man that she wanted to marry him. And this is the funny part. It was considered socially acceptable, even among high society, for a woman to propose to a man on February 29th on this condition. If he said yes, they had to be married on February 29th. So to avoid a four-year engagement, they would get married the same day, which means that saves a lot of money for a lot of people. I'm highly in favor of that one too. So anyway, that's why proposing to a woman proposing to a man has become known as a leap year engagement. That's what a leap year engagement is. See? I told you it had something to do with Ruth. We go to our fifth scene, the leap year proposal. Here's a leap year proposal where she takes a leap of faith. Now we're in chapter 3. This is great. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, 
should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? I'm, in other words, I got a plan here. Um, is not Boaz our relative with whose your young woman you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. She makes it her business to know that. Wash, therefore. Very good advice for finding a spouse. Go clean up, lady. You've been in the field all day. And anoint yourself. In other words, put on some perfume. Okay? Have a shower. Get some Chanel. Everything's going to be fine after that. Put on your cloak. Don't go in your work clothes. Dress up a little. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Very good advice. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. He's, and by the way, there has been research done. I checked this when I proposed. There's been research done that proves that a proposal after dinner is more likely to have a yes. Um, so therefore, even with women, you want to first make sure that she knows that you can feed her. Then ask her. Verse 4, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This is bad advice. Don't do this, okay? Don't do this. Everything, have a shower, get some perfume, make sure he's eaten. Don't go to a sleeping dude and lie at his feet at night. Don't do that. But anyway, that's what happens. And then she's going to like, that's plan A, and then plan A is just going to go on autopilot. So this is what happens. She replied, all that you say I will do, verse 5, verse 6. She went down to the threshing law, did what her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. He's there to protect the grain and be with the people and make sure nothing inappropriate happens. And Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, by the way, that uncovering feet, that's not... That's not code for anything. She literally took the blanket off his feet. And if you ever do that, if you, know, if you know what it's like, if someone pulls the covers off your feet after a while, your feet get cold and you wake up. This is now at the end of the harvest. So this is, this is around October-ish, right? October, November. So it's going to get cold. At midnight, the man, was, verse 8, was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. <laughs> okay, and he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. There's our little line, spreading your wings. So you see what's happening here is he wakes up, and in the Hebrew he uses the feminine article, so he knows a feminine pronoun. So he knows that it's a woman, but he doesn't know who. How does he know it's a woman? Because of the Chanel. Okay, so she's, <laughs> she's wearing perfume, literally. So he wakes up, he can't tell who it is, um, he, but it's a woman. Who are you? And then she says, it's me. And then she uses this phrase. Now, this is not what Naomi said. I think she panics. She jumps the gun. Naomi said, he's going to tell you what to do. She's all like, will you marry me, is basically what she's saying. <laughs> Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this is exactly what he said to her in chapter 2, verse 12. So you can imagine this phrase that he used with her has been playing in her mind. You have come and, uh, to, to find refuge under the wings of Yahweh. The wings, find refuge under the wings of Yahweh, yeah. And then he says, who are you? And she's like, please, I want to find refuge under your wings. Now, there's actually a pun there because the corner of your garment, the, what we would call like the fringe, I guess, of your, they would, the Hebrew word is the same word for wing. So there's kind of like a play on words here. I, you know, she's playing it safe. She's kind of like saying, I know it's cold, 
You know it's cold. I don't know how that blanket got off your feet, but um, can you put the, your blanket over me too because I'm also cold? But actually, she's using the exact same phrase he used earlier, and then she connects it to that by saying, for you are one of our redeemers. You have the legal responsibility to look after, not her, but Naomi. And so this is a very, very loaded moment that if Naomi were watching, she'd be like, what are you doing? That's not what I said. Just lie there. But anyway, that's what happened. So this is, this is a marriage proposal. I mean, it's a very subtle one. It's, it's not overt. And he, he could play it off easily saying, of course you can have the wings of my blanket over you because it's cold. Good night. But he doesn't. He says in verse 10, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So just a couple of things here. The word there for kindness is not the best translation. That's the Hebrew word chesed which can be translated kindness or loving kindness or loyalty. So what he's saying is your first loyalty, your chesed, your loving kindness, your loyalty to Naomi was one loyalty. Now you've got another loyalty in that you want to do the right thing for Naomi again by finding a redeemer for Naomi. Now, the way this could derail badly is if this older man says, you know, you're right. I'm the redeemer for this family. I need to marry Naomi. That could happen. In fact, that's, that's kind of what should happen. But that's not what we want to happen, right? <laughs> so what happens? Well, there's a problem. Uh, verse 12. Yes, you're a worthy woman. But now it is true that I am a re redeemer, a goel. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And that's the sound of the record player scratching across the vinyl. What? What part of the marriage proposal did I botch? You want to marry me? Well, there's this other guy. No, 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 no. We want Boaz. Boaz is the hero so far, right? Well, we're just going to have to figure out what happens. Now, in verse 11, he said, I will do for you all that you ask. That's the hallelujah chorus playing in the background. That's great news. But then he comes with this other redeemer. Verse 13, remain here tonight and, let's hope first thing, in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. No, not good. Then let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you and lie until morning. So to save her reputation, he says, get up while it's still dark and leave. And she does this and she goes and she reports this all to Naomi. And so we have our final scene, girl talk. Scene six, girl talk. She goes to go and touch, you know, they, get the, they get the ice cream and they're on the couch and they're in their pajamas. Okay, what happened? Tell me what happened. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me. Oh, yeah, when he sent her home, he sent her with like three months' worth of food as well that she had to be strong to carry, like 50 pounds of food, and said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That's a good sign that shows he's trying to butter up Naomi as well. Um, and she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. 
And those words, wait till you learn how the matter works out, is Hebrew for to be continued. (laughs) Come back next week and we'll find out what happens. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this um, delightful story of how your mercy and your grace and your provision came to your people through those who are obedient to your law, to those who are living lives of character and godliness. Lord, sometimes we feel like we live in a a place that is spiritually dark and descending as it was in the days of the judges. And yet I pray that you would help us in our our church and our workplaces and our families to be a a snapshot of godly normality, that we would be examples, uh, salt and light to the world of those that know your word and love your word, obey your word, and enjoy the blessing that comes from our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.